I would like to establish a rule for today, which mm-hmm. is no COVID talk. Oh, please, dear God. Another rule, no Israel talk. Yes, yes, yes. I was, I was, I forgot about that. And for some reason, I keep peeking. So give me a second. Let me adjust myself. And also, the input. Uh, Okay, I think this should be, this should be okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like, hmm. I don't know why it was fine until, until we started recording. Just things, yeah. No COVID talk, no Israel talk. Yep. Yes. Okay. Um, that's it. Ready? That's that, that it. being said. That being said, <laughs> what on earth is there to talk about? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, we... I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's the end of the semester for me. Mm-hmm. Well, it's well, just it's the ended, start of so the semester am... for me, so... <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. Well, shit. Yeah. Well, I am, you know, rather pleased to be over and done with this semester mm-hmm. uh, and you know some good news I have won two grant two grants this this uh this this month oh my god holy shit mm, okay sorry I'm, I'm just you know I mean to be fair you know and I think you have pointed this out uh, uh, elsewhere it's that this is going to be the the norm for academia right that how I'm if, if eventually going to be funding my research long term in academia so I should get used to it but still you know it's like publishing your first paper it's that milestone that you reach that maybe suggests that you might not be completely incompetent as an academic (laughs) altogether I mean it's I mean put it this way right better to get a grant than not to get a grant Well, I, I mean, I've, I've been rejected multiple times already, yeah. right? You know, I mean, my second year of my PhD, I've already sent off, you know, ridiculous numbers of grant proposals. I, I mean, I'm just going to navigate now to my Dropbox folder and look at how many grant proposals I've written. Let's see. Uh, grants. That, holy shit. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Well, I applied for fifteen of them. One of them I didn't apply. And of that, I got two. Yeah, but I mean, I think Three. those odds are those odds are typical. Yeah. And um, I've I've been using LinkedIn a lot more in the last year for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and LinkedIn is definitely not a. It's a, it's an odd kind of social network because I think it succumbs to... I mean, like all social networks, it succumbs to the worst tendencies of human beings. Mm-hmm. So you can see a world in which LinkedIn wanted to be a sort of academia.edu, right? Which, uh, by the way, academia.edu, everyone hates because it's ah, okay, effectively spam. Right, okay, that's a lot of what LinkedIn is as well. <laughs> uh, but because I've, I've never been... I've never used academia.edu except like as an outsider, right? Just like looking right. at academic profiles. Um, yeah. So I don't have a sense of, you know, what it's like to actually use the platform as a social network. Um, but LinkedIn, so there is this re- uh, subreddit called LinkedIn Lunatics. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, this is one part of Reddit that I, I'm not sure I want to delve into. Yeah. So the thing about LinkedIn is there are many legitimate users for it. 
Oh, um, sure, yeah. Right. I have a friend so, who works at LinkedIn, I think. Right. So Worked, the thing works, is, I don't know. Anyway, the yeah. thing is, you can imagine, like, for example, right, I am um, doing this remote master's program. Mm-hmm. And because of the professional orientation of it, right, most of us um, have connected on LinkedIn, right? And so it is very useful for me to kind of like put histories to names. Right. Right? Um, yeah. Which, I mean, you don't... you. You could kind of get from Facebook, but not really. Not in the same mm. way. Not in the same way, right? Um, that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that for me, like in the midst of changing careers, it's useful to kind of... I mean, as weird as it sounds, I mean, this is literally what LinkedIn calls it when you add a connection, right? Yeah. They they yeah. say to connect with somebody, um, yeah. So, like for me, it's been useful because this is LinkedIn is how I discovered that somebody that I worked with like ten years ago, um, was at ThoughtWorks for a while. Oh, right? okay. Um, okay. how else? Uh, um, I mean, essentially, like all social media, it's used partly for stalking. Yeah, it is used for partly for stalking. But the thing is, like, you know, then I reached out and I was like, hey, do you remember me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I'm applying to ThoughtWorks and I'd like to hear mm-hmm. more about it. So yeah. you, those are legit users of, of LinkedIn, right? Yes. Um, yes. The thing about LinkedIn lunatics is yeah. you see this kind of taken to its... I wouldn't say this Illogical is... Illogical. I, I wouldn't say that... That... I, I think what I've just described, right, is what LinkedIn imagined it would be. What mm. it actually is, is... So now is like internships and college admission season, right? <sighs> so there is a flurry of posts about how I'm so happy to have gotten into such gotten and such college. My, yes. Right? Or I am so happy to have gotten such and such internship. Which yep. is still again within the realm of what LinkedIn imagined it would be. Yes. Now self promotion. Ex- humble yeah, bragging. Humble bragging, but I mean come on. Like if you think about if you think about um like if you had a LinkedIn, right, it would be worth mm-hmm. mentioning oh, yeah. that you were starting a new PhD position, for example. Well it's called professional development. Right. <laughs> right. So that part up to there is logical and fine. Yeah. Then you have the next logical step, which is some people will say, oh, in this season where we are all seeing people's professional successes, right? Let me show you that... Um, I got into such and such college, but I was rejected from 10 other colleges. Or I got such and such internship. (laughs) Okay, well, yes. I got into such and such um, um, internship, right? Mm. But I was rejected from 60 other jobs. And I mean, in in the US job market, that's a fairly common ratio, to be honest. Yeah, 
I mean, right. that, that, that's the job market in wait till you see academia. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so you have One that. One tenure track position, 190 applicants. Yeah. I mean, I am glad I'm not an academic. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So you have that and, and that's starting to kind of like stretch. Um, One such post is okay. Everybody uh, doing this is okay. Is oh, not okay. Oh no! It becomes spam. Oh no! It becomes it becomes right. like a, a trend thing, and yeah, and these things tend to die or we lose lose their 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 okay. sort of um value very quickly. And then we we can keep going. So let me just pull up LinkedIn lunatics. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I I'm not as pissed off by that because I see a lot of this on Twitter, and Twitter has sort of normalized this. Right. <laughs> For me, right. at least, I don't know. I actually, I actually um, do not follow LinkedIn lunatics. Right. Um, okay. I just end up there from time to time from other subreddits. Uh-huh. Although, um, okay, I should I should point out, right? You know, this whole thing about talking about your failures, I think is, I I don't know whether there's a divide between sort of the the corporate world versus academia because in academia, this I think is something that is horribly under discussed. Which gives rise to all this right. imposter syndrome that you is, is particularly heavy and strong in academia. Right? right. The fact that when you um you know do anything in academia, mm-hmm. rejection is the norm. It's Okay, I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna um cut in here for, for one yes. second because I think um the thing where I think part of the difference is is that everybody applies for jobs that they don't get. Like, that is sure. mm-hmm. very normal, right? And yep, yep, when yep. you're applying for jobs, you, you put out, like, 20 applications mm-hmm. or more, right? Um, when I was in university, that period of time was, like, horrible for the job market, probably yep. akin to what it is now. Yep. And people put out hundreds of applications yep. to get one job. Which so, we call in this in, in invertebrate science broadcast spawning. <laughs> spray and pray. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> So I actually I actually had a, I actually have um a, a, a boot camp classmate who sprayed and prayed, right? After the boot camp. So she was just applying for jobs indiscriminately and when she was brought in for an interview she was like, um, you know, they asked her, Why do you wanna work here? I said, I don't know. I just sprayed and prayed. <laughs> they, she Not got hired. Strictly a good thing. Okay, but oh, she got hired. That's, that's all yeah. that matters. Really. Yeah. yeah. Okay, anyway, I, I think the thing is because there is a certain level of rejection that is the norm, right? right? And the thing is when you work in the corporate world, you are very... Um, like, let me put it this way, okay? You deal with rejection like as a matter of course, or you deal with uncertainty as a matter of course, mm. right? In academia, I mean, yeah, sure, you deal with uncertainty, but it's a different kind of, it's, it's an epistemological uncertainty. I think another right? way to put it is that in academia, rejection is very often tied to your value of self-worth. Yes. How you perceive your your intellectual yes. capacity, how you perceive your personal sort of um, 
quality. And I think also there is that factor where people who make it into a PhD program very often have not failed in a ah. in a I don't want to say in a consequential way because I mean everybody has some kind of setback, right? But if you think mm. about the path to getting into a PhD program, you got into university, you did well at university, right? Mm. Then um, you got into a graduate program and up to that point, even if, you know, you send out like lots of grad school applications and I mean, it's the same thing, right? You only need one. You yeah. can only accept one. Yeah. Right? So at, up to that point, even rejection doesn't indicate failure. Right. Okay. But yeah, yeah, you're yeah. still not up to that point, you're still not at the top of the pyramid, right? The pyramid is, the top of the pyramid is tenure. Yeah. And from the point where you're in a fully funded PhD program to the point where you get tenure, Jesus that Christ. you're still, the the number of spots is still narrowing massively. Yeah, yeah. And to get, to get weeded out that near the top, is a very new experience, I think, for a lot of people in that position. Okay. That's that's my view of it, right? Because the thing is, fair. Hmm. The thing is, it, I mean, if you if you don't get a job, you find another one. But <laughs> if you you are in a if you are in a funded PhD program and you don't get into a tenure track position, there isn't hmm. another one. Well, there is. Right. I mean, I, actually, I mean, at this point, I disagree. I mean, there are, you know, the, the, you you still broadcast spawn in in in, in I mean, academia yeah, of course a lot. But I I think I think the the more important point is what we talked about before, which is that this you know in academia a lot of your achievements are tied to your personal worth, right? For I sure, mean, this yeah. grant proposals thing it's that you know you you literally have to come up with an interesting idea, yeah, and write about it, and develop a feasible strategy for investigating this idea right yep. so it's it's a lot of you know it's a lot of emotional investment going into this it's you need to have this interest for this particular whatever topic it is you're writing about you need to go and do all this reading into making sure that you understand and you know the academic literature can be intimidating yeah is intimidating um and then you have to figure out how you're going to approach this methodologically. Then you have to figure out the funding structure for this as well. How much do you need for reagents? And then you send it off and then some anonymous person reads it, right? And then yep. either decides, fun, don't fun. Fun, as in F-U-N. F-U-N-D. I know, but I'm saying... Yes, I know. It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, uh, and and actually, I mean, this this sort of brings me to something that potentially might be interesting to talk about, which is that the, the whole idea of grant proposals in the first place, or grant competitions, might not be. Uh, or you know, there there are people who are saying that it might not necessarily be the best way to approach funding, mm -hmm. because um, I mean, number one, many grant applications are not blinded, especially at the graduate student level. Yeah, I mean, even if you try yeah. to blind them, I. Th how, yeah, because how, how do you no, blind this level of one of the criteria that uh, at least I think and the National Science Foundation in the U.S. they use as a criterion for ranking uh, 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 proposals is that they will see whether or not the PI 
that the investigator has the necessary experience to carry out the project, which means you have to submit the CV, which means it's no longer blinded. Right. Right, right okay. that's true, yeah. But that brings in a whole bunch of problems. And this is something that a lot of graduate students uh, who have dealt with the NSF, I am unlucky and lucky at the same time because I'm not American, so I don't qualify for NSF funding for graduate research. Right. Right. But there is a lot of sexism. Right. A shit ton of it in the academy. Um, and this manifests itself especially strongly at the grant proposal review stage because reviewers are anonymous. They, you know, there's no accountability for them. And these old sexist white men get to go and say, oh, you know, as a woman, I don't, you know, or, you know, you're, the applicant is a woman and I don't think she's capable enough of doing this or, you know, right. a whole bunch of ridiculous excuses that I've seen from colleagues who have applied for grant proposals and then end up not getting it because of some nonsense review from a reviewer. Right. I mean, it's... I, you know, on the on the on the first um, at first glance, right? I'm not sure how how do you work around this, or is it possible at all? Well, what uh, people have been suggesting is that don't turn it into a a ranked competition. Turn it into right. a lottery. Right. So long as you submit a proposal, so long as it meets basic checks for you know rigor, then all the Eligible proposals go into a pool and you just random draw. Right. Right, we have X amount of money to give away. Therefore, we have X amount of projects we can fund. We will, from this pool, we will pick X projects and those will be funded. I think Germany has tried this out with reasonably high levels of success. Okay. I, I have a question. I mean, in the case of something like NSF, I mean, I don't <laughs> yeah. know if they have restrictions on... On what on the scope of what they fund? It depends but, on what you are applying for. So right. I mean, there there are different sort of um, funding programs you can apply to, right? At the right. graduate student level, most of us, most of my colleagues are applying for the GRFP, the Graduate Research Fellowship Program. So okay. that one is anything goes, right? If you're a graduate student, you don't even. I mean, if you even if you get funding, you don't even have to use the money on what the project you described. You can use the money for any research expense. Right, it's one of the most generous um, uh, uh, fellowship schemes out there, and I don't qualify for it, so I'm very sore about this. Okay, <laughs> uh, but basically, right, you know, uh, it effectively funds I think the first two or three years of your PhD. Right, right. Uh, except, uh, except tuition costs, which your your you know your your program should already be paying for. Yep. Right. So. It, I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. And then, of course, NSF, at the professional level, they have specific um, divisions that deal with specific can, types of, of research. So you have the division of organismal biology, uh, mm -hmm. division of you know, high-energy physics, and so on and so on. And so, on. so you know, for those specific uh, grant types, you will, they, they will specifically call for a pool of, of, of proposals on the theme. And then right. they will have to rank these. So I, I guess that's where I kind of have a question mark. So let's say the the grant is aimed at a particular discipline or a particular like um you know, it it's aimed at a particular goal, right? Then I mean at that point there needs to be that first check, right? To say, okay, this meets the criteria or this doesn't meet the criteria. Yeah. And I think that, that still needs to happen, 
Right, you still right. need to have an eligibility check, a sanity check, also plagiarism check, you know. Right, um, right, yeah. But I think where the discussion is moving towards is, can we actually rank eligible proposals? I mean... If your proposal is eligible, who is right. to say that your science is better than someone else's science? Right. Especially with the nature of research, because you literally don't know what you're going to find. Yeah. <laughs> right? right, and I mean, you have no idea what applications might result, what you know, novel insights might result from any research at the proposal stage, no less. That's uh, I mean, that's something that every now and then has. Well, I say every now and then, but I mean, in the last year or so, has popped up every now and then because of mm. um, because of what's the name of the the scientists who founded uh, BioNTech. Oh, BioNTech. No, oh, BioNTech. I can't remember the names, but yeah, right, um, right. The M- mRNA vaccines have, yeah. and it's not just the two of them, and they're the ones that spun it off as a company, but uh, I can't remember that, that other lady's name who's been working for this for a long, long time and had her research rejected multiple no, times. No, that, from... she, she founded BioNTech, as in she's still oh, she? uh, involved oh. with BioNTech. Yeah. Okay, okay. I can't remember the name, but let's, let's yeah. see. BioNTech. Um, so... Which is funny because the, let's see, one, two, <clears throat> three, nope, uh, found, blah, blah, blah. There's an NYT article on this, right? Yeah, there is. Ah, come on. Okay. Um, MRNA. Kati Kariko. Dr. Kati yes. Kariko, yeah. Yes. I'll put it in the in the notes. Okay, cool. Because the the funny thing is, um, I mean the the NYT article, uh, yeah. and I th- don't know if there is a New Yorker article as well. Uh, mm-hmm. but basically describes the whole thing about how she's working on mRNA is not considered very promising. You know, then she was rejected for tenure. Uh, she was actually yep. demoted, which is very unusual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For not producing like good enough research. Um, At Penn. <laughs> yes. It? Yeah. Exactly. Jeez. And the funny thing, of course, is I get all these emails from Penn. Mm. Um, and every now and then they're like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Penn played a big role in the discovery of like all the development of Jeez, mRNA please. vaccines. Uh, I think. I think Penn may still hold some of the patent. The patent. I'm not sure. Mm. The cojones yeah, on these people, oh my god. I, I know, right? But, um, I mean, in this particular case, it's Penn, but I don't think they would be the only ones, right? <laughs> I mean, lots of universities hold IP from, from academics. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, even if they don't, you know, their own committees don't consider the academics good enough for tenure, they still hold yep. the IP. So, yep. Such as. It's very exploitative. Yep. <laughs> yep. And I mean, I, I guess it's kind of like if you commit to the lottery, I think it's kind of like you kind of have to commit all the way, basically. Which I don't think would be a bad thing at all. Right. Right, because it's probably fairer than whatever system you can cook up 
Yeah, I'm, 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 I mean, the, 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 I think the, the broader picture is that it's, I think there's sometimes it's no objective way to rank proposals. I mean, put it this way. If I, okay, I mean, take it from my field, right? organismal biology or evolutionary, and ecolo- evolutionary biology and ecology. Mm-hmm. I get, say, 500 proposals, you know, ranging mm-hmm. from studying aphids to yep. blue whales to right. um, I mean, uh, fungi. How do I say, <laughs> you know, the, oh, the fungus paper, the fungus proposal is better because, because what exactly, right? right then you start right. to increasingly find sort of nitpicky and petty reasons for assessing the quality of a proposal, and which often leads to either racism, sexism, mm-hmm. or some other you know form of discriminatory behavior, especially for people for whom these issues are you know they have fewer scruples about these issues. Yeah. Yeah, I also right. wonder so, if yeah. I also wonder if this would, um, okay, it's a this is a, a bit of a a bit of a stretch, but on the one hand you have kind of like ranking proposals at the uh, mm-hmm. or you know, well yeah, ranking proposals at the grant stage, right, and the output. How do you discern the quality of research? Yeah. Once it's been done. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's another well, question. Well, I mean, if you ask the university, obviously they have very specific uh, criteria, right? Oh, did it get uh-huh. published in the CNS journal? CNS is Cell Nature Science. Right, it's yeah. It's the, the holy grail of uh, where everyone wants to publish. Unfortunately, you know, um, yeah. the, the, the stupid thing, of course, is that Cell Nature and Science are not always publishing good quality work. <laughs> And, you know, if you're talking about some of the, the, the spin-off journals from CNS, things like Scientific Reports, which is a, a, a nature imprint, uh, mm-hmm. science, science Advances, Nature Communications, these are open access journals that are paid to play. <sighs> okay. So then it incentivizes ex, you know, rich and well-established labs to sort of l- build their credentials off paying for... I mean, paying a premium. Obviously, the the peer review process is still very stringent at these places, but mm-hmm. because there is money attached to it, there is a an additional conflict barrier to publishing in these. No, I wouldn't say conflict, but there's there is a barrier to publishing in these areas. Right, if you're okay. a small lab in a developing country, are you going to be able to fork out five thousand US dollars to publish a single paper right. in Nature Communications? No. Right. 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 And so your your you know even if you have a paper that's Nature Comms worthy, you won't be able to put it in there. Right. So, and and the publishing sort of uh, scientific publishing is one of the biggest rackets out there these days as well. I right. I, I mean, I can't think of a good thing to say about it. I'm and a lot of people don't know about this. You know, I mean, I I and this comes from Twitter again. I've caught, uh, no one has written to me to ask for my papers yet because my papers are not, not that interesting. But I've had mm-hmm. <laughs> colleagues post about how you know undergrads write to them saying, "Hi, I couldn't afford the thirty dollars the publishers are asking for your paper." So I'm writing to you as a last resort because I need your paper for a project. I'm doing like, and I'm like, no, these papers should you shouldn't be paying for these papers. You just write to the people who wrote the papers, and they'll send you the paper for free. Yeah, that's why. That's why I keep um hearing as well. It's ridiculous, and but you know, on the other pe- hand, peer right? review is done for free. Yeah, I've reviewed papers before, and I've not. I never get paid for this. No one gets paid for peer review. So, so these publishers yeah. are laughing their way to the bank. One, one second. So the thing is, right, if you need one paper, mm-hmm. then 
yeah, sure, write to the write to the write to one of the researchers and ask for it. Yeah. But where <laughs> the publishers I mean if you think about you know, if you think about it from the from the business point of view, right? What is mm-hmm. the role of the publishers? Um like what value are they bringing to the market? One I mean, on the one hand, they would say, you know, it's peer review and blah, blah, blah. And, and yeah, sure. Okay. Although, I mean, I would argue that probably the, the academic community would probably, I mean, if you just publish stuff, the academic community will probably tell you if it's <laughs> not very good. to be <coughs> but that's Well, we can talk about that because uh, more scandal has emerged. But anyway, yes. Ah, okay. So... We will, we'll, we'll get to that. But I think the other side of it was because I, I am in this uh, Facebook group called Barbell Medicine, right? Which okay. is, um, <coughs> I mean, I, I guess like hmm. in the last 50 years, just like you have more evidence-based medicine, evidence-based nursing and all these, um, all these like science-adjacent fields that have historically not been evidence-based, right? Right. Um, so the, the, the people who run Barbell Medicine, they are medical doctors mm-hmm. um, who are also heavily involved in uh, strength training, right? right. And so they are it. interested, yeah. So they're interested in, um, and okay, exercise science, another field that kind of has evolved out of like, Ritual and trial and error and blah blah blah, but not yep. necessarily evidence based. Ritual, faith yeah. based medicine. I mean, faith based exercise. Yeah, faith based. There it's we like go. Yeah. science, right? Yeah. Um. So, a lot of the people in that group are interested in the evidence behind uh, health and fitness. Yes. So somebody somebody raised this question, which is like, you know, um, is there a, Actually, I can't remember whether it was there or whether it was on some subreddit, whatever it is. So, um, somebody raised this question, like, you know, there is this thing that I want to I wanna read up on. And there are like 50 papers that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> is there a way to get them that is not Sci-Hub? <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, at the risk of, you know, the FBI breaking down my door. Just go with Sci-Hub. Right? right? Yeah. Okay. So somebody said, okay, you know, just, just email the authors, which fair, if you have one or two or even five papers, but mm. the guy pointed out 50 papers, I don't have time to do that. Right? Mm. That is the value of having, you know, university or library access or whatever. Yes. And the ability to just go to one point and get everything <coughs> you need. So if this is how they position their their firstly if if you if you think of yourself as an aggregator you're not charging whatever sums it is they're they're charging for excess mm. right yeah. it's it's going to be much more akin to like a small subscription fee to get yeah. access to like i mean like what is it like Amazon like Kindle Unlimited is like ten, twenty dollars a month? Except scientific right. publishers charge university libraries exorbitant amounts yeah, for exactly. journal subscriptions. Exactly. It's nuts. Exactly. I mean because they, they hold effectively a monopoly. If you don't yes. get the papers from them, where are you gonna get them from? It's two companies. It's Elsevier and Springer. Yeah. That's it. 
yeah. So, and for any given, it's not even a, even even in the case, it, it's a duopoly that's very clear, but there's no competition because any given paper is only published by one of them. That's right. Yep. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think there was a, a, someone did the math and uh, I cannot remember, but they basically had a turnover of billions last year. Not just well, one billion, well. but multiple billions. And, you know, this is coming at, at uh, on the backs, I think. I think the, the primary injustice, of course, that this is built on the backs of, number one, peer reviewers who are doing this for free. Number two, public research funding. Right. I think... Well, I'm not sure which one I'm more offended by. I mean, as not as in as a non-academic. Mm. <laughs> I think I'm more as offended taxpayer, by the public... Right. Yeah, I'm more yes. often that not that I'm not that I'm paying US taxes, but yeah. yep. You're you know, paying, I think I'm know, more offended we, by we the idea that, that yeah that that public money is ending up in publishers' pockets. Private. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, okay. To be fair, you know, public money flowing to private pockets is is fine, but at the rate at I mean, which it's hardly it's happening, new. I I think it's the other right. Thing. No, but, but yeah. you know, it's. The, 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 the extent to which this is happening, the magnitude to which this is happening is is, is ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And you know, bear in mind of course that as as an academic, right, as someone who who does a service to the number one, the scientific community, but also to the publishing companies as a peer reviewer, I am yeah. making a fraction of what an accountant at Elsevier makes. Right. I think <laughs> I think okay, I mean just to address like the public money flowing to private pockets part. Mm. I mean, that's hardly new. And yeah. I, I don't think that is in itself a problem. I mean, it's not COVID, immoral in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So much private, uh, so much public money has gone into private pockets during mm. COVID, right? It's business. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's but it's more economy. of, it's more of, I mean, it is an, it is an economic calculation, right? You're, you're talking yeah. about the business as uh, the government as a corporate entity representing a country or yeah. a state, right? Yeah. Oh, that's a very Singaporean way of characterizing government. Okay, yes. No, but I mean, like, but <laughs> I'm just saying, like, f- when you're talking about the idea of public money and private money, I mean, mm. this is yep, how yep, yep. you're talking about the government as a, as a, as an economic entity, right? You're saying, yeah. like, okay, I want X, and I'm willing to pay Y amount of money for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then in return, I get Z value out of it. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, this works, right? This is <coughs> the this is the idea behind public funding. Yes. Right. Um, but then you kind of have that question of, okay, if I am a government entity or some other kind of, it doesn't even have to be a government entity per se, or if you think about like a non-profit entity, okay, I want X, I want more basic scientific research in this field, or I want... Yeah you know, some kind of applied science that can be put to this use, okay? Uh, and I'm willing to pay Y amount of money for it. And then, at the end, I don't get Z. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I think um, in the US, at least for science, uh, not science, at least for medical things, um, I think if you receive funding, or at least some types of funding, it must be um, published or it must be um, archived with the National Institutes of Health or I don't know if yes. I'm making this up. 
Yes, so there there are some stipulations. Well, some, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's part of ensuring (coughs) that the the US government that paid for this research at least gets the research at the end. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Instead of having it paywalled behind some publisher's um, paywall. Yeah. Which, I mean, it comes to this thing that we we were talking about yesterday, or briefly talking about yesterday. So, um... I put this in the show notes and it is a Patreon page by Andy Matuchak. I'm yes. guessing that's how you pronounce his name. Andy Matuchak, Andy Matuchak. I'm not sure. Uh, I came across this because he, um, well, I, I don't know if he is involved in Obsidian, but there is this app called Obsid- Obsidian, which is one of a number of apps in this space known as personal knowledge management. I wish right. they didn't call it that. Jeez, I don't think Obsidian very, calls itself that. Very Silicon Valley. Right? Yeah, but I mean, um, this is this is to do with the class of apps like Notion, mm. which we are using for show notes, right? Yep. Notion, uh, Craft, Rome Research, which I haven't tried. I guess to some degree, Evernote, might fall in this category if anybody is still using that. Mm. Um, Devon Think would fall in this category. I've never used it. It's kind of expensive. Yeah. Uh, and now Obsidian. And the idea behind it is just, I mean, people characterize it in different ways. Probably the easiest way, I think, to understand it is the idea of the second brain. So you put information into it and you re- retrieve information out as quickly as possible. So it's kind of yep. like, um, you know, you're doing research or you're taking notes for class and then when you need to refer back to it, you can just search. Yeah. And it pulls out that information. So, yep. um, I, th- I think I heard of this because, I, or I think I heard of this guy, Andy Matuchak, because um, Obsidian, which I'm now using, has a number of plugins and, um, one of his posts was linked in explaining one of the plugins. That's basically it. Right, okay. Right? Yeah, and I think, I'm not I'm not entirely clear what he's working on or what he's researching because the, the title of his Patreon says, Andy Matuchak is creating tools for thought, which... <sighs> Usually is a red flag. Ugh. Uh, well, I mean, to me. I looked at his the page and it says he's an independent researcher, which sometimes is also a red flag. So. Yes, that's usually a red flag, to be honest. Yeah. Um, because it can mean anyone from like creationists to yeah. <laughs> creationists and mostly. I think, but <laughs> I think that's kind of what um, raised my question. <coughs> Sorry. Bless you. Thank you. Um, I think that's kind of what raised my question, which is, Okay, there are a number of reasons why people might undertake independent research. One yes. is that they cannot find an academic position. Okay. <laughs> the, another one is that they could, but for whatever reason, usually like lifestyle reasons, right? Like you don't want to be tied to a location or God knows whatever. Um, they don't want to take on in an academic uh, position at a particular institution. Yeah. 
Yeah. And some of them do have arrangements where they yeah. say, I'm going to be independent, but I am affiliated in some sense, right? So that, yes. you know, a university allows me to use their facilities. Like that does happen. And, and to, to be fair, there are some people who, have, who you know, are doing legitimately excellent research, amazing yeah. research um, as independent researchers. I think one of the people that uh, springs, I think um, this is a guy who wrote some of the more groundbreaking bioinformatics softwares uh, for genomics. Okay. Uh, and genomic analysis. And then he's now running like an orchid conservation organization in the Neotropics. So he's no longer affiliated with the university. He's no longer affiliated with a, with an right. academic organization. He's doing, you know, on the ground work. And so he builds himself as an independent researcher. And, you know, I think it's the, the, the one sort of case that, that springs out at least to mind to me as an example okay. of how that could potentially be useful but then of course you run up against this huge array of shysters and and uh, scam artists grifters essentially who are you know yeah and so i mean the thing is i i don't really have the tools or ability to to determine whether this in this particular case whether the tools for thought claim is you know is academically sound right yeah um i think if you're saying like if you're saying like Okay, I'm you know interested in in things like personal knowledge management and how they interact with the human mind. I think that's fair. Like, sure. Kind of seems like seems like that's the direction that he's going. But I think like leaving that aside because I'm actually kind of ag- agnostic to to that side of it. I think the idea that he he raises in the Patreon, right? Because in you know on Patreon they allow you to set goals and yeah. often m- what most people um, will peg as a goal is when we hit this number I can quit my job <laughs> and do this full time right. right for for most serious um, people for most people who are using pa- Patreon seriously and are actually like making a decent amount of money from it yeah. What he has done, right? His first one is um when we hit this goal, Patreon supporters will collectively cover my mortgage. Okay. Fine. <laughs> the second goal is crowdfunded grad student level research grant. When we hit this goal, we will have crowdfunded the equivalent of a typical grad student's fellowship. And I think the I mean the way that the thing that he's comparing himself against, right, or his Patreon against, is instead of relying on grant money, mm. right, <clears throat> can I reach out to people who are interested in the results of my research and just get them to pay for it? I mean... So, it's it's like in a theory that writ very, very small. Yes. In theory, that's interesting. The problem, of course, is that it's hard to predict research output. Yes. I have projects Very that have been so. I've been sitting on for almost a decade now that I'm still working on. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why I've been personally sort of... And, and I've thought about this because, you know, when I started the Dead Bird stuff seven, 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 eight years ago, my God. Um, you know, people said, hey, why... Because I, I basically self-fund... I mean, I received like $1,000 of funding from my, from my boss at the time, who, you know, and I'm eternally grateful to him for that. 
And since then, it's been my own money. And mm-hmm. I think I've sunk more than $10,000 into this already. Right. Right. And so people said, why don't you consider Patreon or crowdfunding your research? Right. But then, you know, the question then is, then am I beholden to these funders to produce mm-hmm. something at some sort of regular interval? Um, you know, are my Instagram posts are showing dead animals enough? I mean, these are, you know, uh, these are, do I, does this serve any public good in the first place? Yes, if you ask me, but still, you know, and, and it, it, it feels like a very neoliberal approach towards science, the scientific enterprise, which I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. I don't know. It's... So I, I think there are two sides to this, right? One is um, the question of can science really escape from the economic calculation, mm. which is kind of like, which is part of the reason why grants exist to begin with. Government grants, but, uh, specifically, or society grants. grants. Yeah, or, or like, yeah, ex- foundation grants or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and then the second part of it is, let's say you do did go the crowdfunding route, is this an, is this a, is this uh, okay, it's clearly a transaction. There's no way to get around it, right? But yeah. is this a, um, a sale? Right. Or is this patronage? Yes. Right? Because Correct. Am I expected to, to deliver something? Because also, yeah. the, the, the other concern that I have, and this is something that I think a lot of scientists probably think about as well, it's then, does this also open me to attack Right. From people who say I'm stealing public money or stealing people's money right. and then, you know, sequestering it for my own purpose. Am I, am I just begging? Is this modernly begging? Which, to be fair, grant proposals essentially are. But still. I, right. But I think the thing is, like, for, for artists, this is nothing new. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's the exact same conversation for, for artists. And yeah. artists have just come to navigate it because this is, for many artists, Grant proposals are not an option. No, I mean, grant proposals, but, you know, sort of the, the crowdfunding, I think crowdfunding is something that I think yep. science is still grappling with. It's still... Yes. Deeply... Un- and I, I mean, I, I, personally, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it uh, on the personal yep. level. I, can, I support people who, who do it, but for my own work, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot to think about and potentially there are consequences that I may not be considering mm, if yep. I, you know leap into this this thing and I'm sure there are people who are more than happy to fund my dead bird work right if I say I, I think yeah I, I think part of w- one difference right between um, scientists and artists when it comes to the crowdfunding aspect of it is as weird as it sounds people are more prepared to pay for art I've, I don't uh. think I've ever said that before but people understand what it means to pay for Mm. art right Right. people don't understand what it means to pay for science yeah on an individual contributor level yeah yeah because we don't pay for science at an individual contributor level there's no precedent for this yeah exactly (laughs) so you know I, I I'm it's just I mean, you're hitting on something that, that has been been vexing me for a long time, and it's I think something that I've 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 sort of managed my anxiety over this by not thinking about it. But God, now I'm being forced to think about it. Avoidant, <laughs> you know. And and 
could I have saved myself tens of thousands of dollars by crowdfunding my dead bird work from the beginning? Perhaps. Is this something that's going to weigh on my on me for a long time to come? Yes. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I also yeah. think, I mean, um, so my entire economics education, as I keep saying, comes from planet money. Mm. <laughs> right. I think the thing is the, the economic calculation cannot be avoided. And I think crowdfunding is probably not the right choice for most scientists for the simple reason of what we were talking about earlier, which is firstly, research is unpredictable. If you knew yeah. what you were going to find, I think it was Brian, I want to say it was Brian Cox who said this. Mm. Um, if you knew what you were going to find, it wouldn't be called research. Yeah. Right. Um, and the, the transactional nature of this kind of crowdfunding means that there are often implicit expectations of returns. Correct. Correct. And so I think it only works for people who are doing research in a particular, f- in, in some fields, right, um, with particular expected outcomes, right, where it. It's kind of like, okay, I'm as a as a Patreon um, supporter. I am okay with with like what I want to do is I want to know, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay, which is not a large group <laughs> of people. Usually. Although technically, the the dead bird stuff falls squarely within this category. The the downside is this. Right, and mm-hmm. this is something that again I've had to, I've been grappling with. It's that okay, one one of my outputs, and this is an output that is very quantifiable, is that every time okay. I pick up a dead bird, I write about it. Right, I write about it on social media. You know, I give people details, and I cur- curate a public database, and I do curate uh-huh. a public database of, of all this on iNaturalist. Right. Right. Now the problem, of course, is then do you know there is this pressure to continue producing more and more content. One of the things that I was, you know, thinking about was should I make videos of mm-hmm. the skinning process? But then, of course, that runs into the problem of number one, what if people complain that, you know, it's gory? Yep. Number two, what if this incentivizes people to skin their own birds, which shouldn't be right. happening? Any skinning right. should be taking place within the context of a museum. Right. I'm not sure that that would even pass the YouTube content check. Would it? I don't know. Uh, no, they're skinning videos I on YouTube. Okay. You know the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks Museum has a skinning tutorial right. on this on YouTube. Right. Okay, which then brings another question, right? Which is the irony of it is if you put up a YouTube channel as David Tan and you put mm. up a skinning video, that could incentivize people, as you said. Whereas mm. if you put up, you know, when UA Fairbanks puts up a skinning video, nobody looks at the YouTube channel. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say nobody, but there is that veneer of this is a scientific endeavor and you shouldn't try this at home. Well, not just that, but there's also the, um, the I, and I think this is something that, I, another another thing is that, you know, does this then become a media operation? An institution yeah. has a PR team, has yes. a media team to deal with this. I have to handle my research and then now with people funding me, I have to handle outreach Yep. on a much more involved level as well. For me, my yep. current outreach is when, as and when I feel like it, I, I write something. 
as yeah. and when I'm bored, as and when I have to write something for professional work, I often deflect and do social media stuff. But still, right, right you know, it, it, it then becomes that, that pressure, I, which I, I, I'm deeply uncomfortable with. I don't know. I, some people I know handle this very well. You know, they're very good science communicators. But I don't like the added stress to the existing stress of the work I have to do right. as it stands. I mean, it sounds like you're just, you're coming up against, I say you're just, but I mean, it's not trivial. It sounds like you're coming up against the business side of science, right? The mm, marketing yes. and the, um, really, in this case, the marketing. And then which, the economics you know, is really Which scientist is trained to do this? I mean, that's why they are marketing professionals. Mm. And that's why the really good ones are paid what they are paid. Because and that's really why bad. science communication really is essentially, marketers. it's also a profession. It's increasingly yes. a profession. NUS now offers a master's in science communication. Yeah. They're not the only ones. I think, uh, I mm. feel like Imperial mm. has one yeah. as well. Uh, the uh, one the NUS offers a joint degree with ANU, so ANU also offers science right, communication right, right. program. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think I don't know. I mean, we think of we think of a lot of jobs. I think as being shielded from from. Okay, let me let me put it another way. So there is this Joel Spolsky article which I have to go and dig up, but um. I, I think when I first read it, I didn't have enough work experience to really appreciate um, what it was saying. Mm-hmm. But let me... Okay. So, Joel Spolsky, he um, is from Fort Creek Software. I think that's what it's still called. Um and I actually don't know what his involvement in all the various companies is, but basically, um, he was one of the guys behind Trello, one of the ah. yeah, and one of the people behind um, Stack Overflow or Stack mm. Exchange. Oh, okay, right, yeah, well, yeah. I don't mm. think he's actively involved with with both of those now, but um, he wrote a lot about fifteen years ago. <laughs> I don't okay. think he really writes anymore now. <laughs> and he's interesting to me at least because he is a developer right who understands business which is mm. very rare yeah right and <laughs> no so shit. he talks about yeah he talks about um this 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 post this article the development abstraction layer it's basically saying why is it that when a developer leaves his job to write his own software, right, they often can't make a living out of that. Right. Like, why do those businesses often fail? And um, the funny thing is, there is this line, actually, um, in it that is that I thought is quite funny. Um, okay. So, is this, like, why did he fail? He's pretty sure he knows. Marketing, he says. <laughs> like many young technicians, he's apt to say things like, Microsoft has worse products, but better marketing. When uttered by a software developer, the term marketing 
simply stands in for all that business stuff. Everything they don't actually understand about creating software and selling it. Mm. Yeah. And then he says, this is actually not what marketing means. Actually, Microsoft has pretty terrible marketing. (laughs) Can you imagine those dinosaur ads actually making someone want to buy Microsoft Office? (laughs) Hey, John Cleese was a pretty good... Was that used? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But yeah. Anyway. So, um, what he talks about in this, in this article is actually saying the job of a software company, right, and what it does for the developer is to make all the business problems disappear. Yes. Right? When you are hired by a software company, company to build software, they hire people who worry about renting the office space, who worry about setting up the printer, who set up your servers, who go out and find customers, who figure out what customers want and therefore what software to build, who handle payroll, accounting, taxes, everything. They hire people to make those problems go away for you, the developer. When you go out on your own, (laughs) suddenly you have to deal with all of that. And you thought like, oh, okay, I don't have to deal with managers and politics and people telling me what to do anymore. But the trade-off is now you have to do all of that yourself and you don't actually spend that much time developing. Yes, correct. Right. And it is very involved. It's such a you know a a, a brain in a uh, you know brain space intensive process. I mean, I yeah. I handle a lot of my own media stuff. Yeah, right? I have I make regular contact with with journalists. I talk to them on a regular basis to cultivate this network of science journalists who I can, you know, feed my research to essentially, and they are hungry for research, right? Yep. But that takes a lot of time. Right, and then yep. working with researchers, uh, working with journalists to sort of um, make sure that your con- your, your your research is ad- is accurately represented is another really really time consuming thing that I think a lot of young scientists underestimate. But I think this is probably the the this is kind of what we are talking about, right? Like the mm. difference between working in a university context and fighting for grants versus being an independent researcher mm. and Figuring this out for yourself. Right? Yeah, figuring no, I agree, out, I agree. Yeah, like, who's going to pay for my... I mean, you, in a university context, you already have that question, like, who's going to pay for my research? But yep. that problem is abstracted away so that it's it's much more generalized, right? You're thinking about it from the point of view of which foundations can I apply to for a grant? Yep. Whereas in the case of Andy Matuchak, I don't know how to pronounce his name, actually. I have no idea. NDM. In the case of NDM, he has to think about which individuals will benefit from what I may or may not publish. Yes. Right? And then reach out and find those people. And he has found 619 of them. Oh, good for him. I know, right? But yeah. Decent. He's decent, yeah. I mean, he's he's making a living in, in San Francisco, so... (laughs) <laughs> yeah Yikes. right but i i wouldn't want to be in his position even though yeah. even though it sounds you know it sounds like the life right research what yeah. you want get paid for it but i i don't know how i would get started if i was in his position yeah i i mean 
I wish funding were easier, but you know, at some point maybe I might have so to be forced into that in, in, into that path. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. You know, I will continue plugging away. I actually have working on my dead bird stuff today. Actually, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. But you know, it's it 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 is going to to weigh heavily on my on the back of my mind as I move forward, even as you know. I continue applying for grants and sometimes getting them, most of the time not getting them, you know. But right. uh, we've come very far from the lottery idea. But no, anyway, going back to the idea of grant Well, lotteries. I mean, yes and, and no, because I was going to say something, but mm. go back, yeah, and talk No, about I mean, essentially, lottery. you know, if you take the, the sort of the, 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 the step back and take, look at the big picture, effectively, f- from the end user perspective, it already is a lottery, right? You right. apply for a ton of grants, some you get, some you don't. In fact, <laughs> this is a funny thing, right? This proposal that got funded uh, by the AMNH and the Society for Systematic Biologists, both of whom are you know, mm-hmm. fairly august, fairly well-regarded institutions, um, got rejected by other august and uh, respected institutions as well, right? Because I submitted, you know, you, you, when you're writing grants, you don't write a brand new grant every time. You take right, an idea right. that you have, you tweak it a little bit, and then you send it off. The f- basic foundation has been rejected by various other scientific societies. Uh, but for some reason, the reviewers at the Society for Systematic Biologists is a very, very prestigious institution, very uh, the world leader in systematic science, right? taxonomy, essentially. Right. Um, and the EMNH both saw fit to, right. to fund it. So it, essentially, it's a lottery from, from the end user perspective. Right, it's right, if I get right. favorable reviewers at this particular society, they will be more willing to fund it. I think this got also rejected from the British Ornithological Union. So it's like you know, yeah. Anyway, right. I was gonna say, um, I don't know if fairness is the word I would apply to this. Right. Okay. This is this is a bit out there, but um, this is an. I, I don't know where I read it, but I know that um, it is from Stratechery, the blog by okay. Ben Thompson. So at some point, Ben Thompson wrote about um, one of the benefits of the universal basic income that I didn't consider. Ah, I mean it's it's one of the it's one of the things right that proponents of the UBI will often cite, Universal right, scientific kind of funding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's the idea that, you know, with this kind of, with that psychological, with that psychological security, mm-hmm. you incentivize people to take more risks and be more innovative than they would ever be otherwise, like when they're in survival mode. It's kind of like, yeah. you are, you are, Increasing the limits of, oh, not increasing the limits, but you are you are creating conditions to maximize potential, right? If you mm. talk about the person who, I mean, you don't have to talk about like, I I think it's counterproductive to talk about, you know, like maybe somebody who's working in a supermarket is Einstein, but I think it's counterproductive because he worked in a patent office. But okay, <laughs> I I think yeah. the point that we are really getting at is. Um, you don't have to talk in terms of Einstein's. You can talk in terms of incremental benefits, right? Yes. The person who is doing job X that they don't like and that takes up all their headspace and time and prevents them from looking and for an incrementally better job Y, right? Yeah. 
Whereas if they had mm. the opportunity, if they didn't have to worry about the money side of it, mm. right, they can do whatever it took to get incrementally better job Y, which then leads to incrementally better job Z, and so on and so forth. Yes. Forward. And also, and you know, better way, mental health. And just, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, it, it, it builds up in society. And this is one of those things right. where people often look at them, you know, they get lost in the details. Yeah. What if one person exploits the system you know, and, and gets an unfair advantage. When but then look at the, the system level. When you're yeah. talking about system level, it doesn't. It's not useful to talk about the edge cases. You need to talk about the broad the, yeah, the, in the middle. Correct. Which you know, I mean, it's, this is something that you will get into all the time with what, universal health care in the US as well, right? Yeah. Oh, what if someone you know becomes a welfare queen? I'm like, Christ sakes, the societal benefits outweigh the you know the the what one two percent who will try to game the system. Yeah, I mean, you still need to design a well. You still need to create a well-designed system, but, but not at the expense of. Correct. You are you're trying to maximize overall benefit, which is I think something that we we in Singapore struggle to balance, right? You know, all, a lot of our social welfare schemes are yep. over-engineered to prevent exploitation to the yep. point where it becomes almost unusable. I mean, look at the something as simple as the rediscovers vouchers. <laughs> which is yeah. such a you know a, a sort of a, a Byzantine way of redeeming the vouchers that what forty percent have not redeemed it more than that, or forty percent have I, redeemed, I redeemed it. mine. And uh, fair enough, but still, right? You know the the yeah again the individual redeemer is mm-hmm. irrelevant to the yeah. broad scale societal issue yep. of are people redeeming this in the first place or not, yep. right? Is it even yep. usable? Has it become so anti-exploitation proof that it is unusable? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I have very mixed feelings about this because, um, on again, on... I don't know if it was Planet Money. I know on Planet Money and also on After Hours, mm. which is um, a podcast by three... Um, Harvard Business School professors, they they talked about the stimulus checks. Yes, that the U.S. Okay. government gave out. Yeah, right. And the HBS professors were, I think they were, just as everybody in the U.S. was, they were impressed by the idea even of a stimulus check, which to Singaporean is like ha ha ha, <laughs> we get it all the time, like just free money from the government. Just um, wait for an election every four years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? So they were definitely <laughs> impressed by the idea, but the HBS professors, they regarded it, I think quite rightly, as a blunt tool. Because mm-hmm. okay. when you give the same amount of money to everybody, right, there yep. is a large chunk of people for whom it's not a stimulus, it's extra savings. Yeah. Right, and so you are not so much stimulating the economy as, as squirreling money, it, giving people yeah money to squirrel away. Yeah, and so for the people who need it the most, they derive very immediate short term benefit, right? Yes. But they get no long term benefit out of it. Yes. It's the people well, who don't need it that get the long term. Well, yeah, benefit, but you know, I, is, I mean, this is again the the question of the 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 one percent who will not benefit from this, who will squirrel this money away, versus the you know incredible vast majority of whom this is essential money right and then it's the question of is adding a layer of means testing necessary you know this adds a layer of bureaucracy adds hurdles 
is it really one percent? I mean, that that's a good question for the policy experts to the wonks to discuss, right? Then, then how much money should you be giving such that it it maximizes the benefit to the people who need it, and minimizes right. the amount of you know sort of squirreling away and private and, and sort of just just you know, I would say unproductive ut- uh, utilization right. of the money. I think this is the other thing, which is b- because presumably the US has never done this before. Mm. Right, they decided the trade-off of not having to do some means testing, um, was worth it. Like yeah. we don't have the time or we don't have the resources yeah. to put somebody to figure this out. Yeah, and we're just gonna give everybody this money. Um, whereas in Singapore, right, over time we've developed systems to say like <sighs> if you live in a house with this value, mm. you get less money. Although right. some people will say that you know our system is overly means tested as well, so right. uh, there, I mean, this I think this is where the discussion can be had. This is where productive, meaningful discussion can be had. None right. of that rubbish that that ends up spewing out in the media about you know whether this is socialism or communism or not. I because that's that's a non-discussion. Right, right. It's bad faith arguments, right? Yeah, but the, exactly. The, the real meat of the discussion here is really sort of what balance do we strike between right making public welfare widely accessible versus making sure that it, it benefits the people who need it the most. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that the the HBS professors, they are not talking about whether this is good or bad, right? They're, yes. They, are, they have said their position on it, which you would expect to be nuanced because they're academics, yeah. is that it is good for some percentage of people and it is the benefit is negligible for some percentage of people and can right. we alter that percentage through means mm. testing right? right not just alter the percentage but but it's more of like free up resources yeah because yeah. you're giving money away right and that like would you take a situation where the lowest x percent got double the money and the top x percent got nothing i think yeah. most people would say yes but then you have the cost of figuring out who these percentage brackets are. And then the barrier right. of entry for people who are edge cases. People who say, oh, yeah. I, you know, when, when you create a qualifying line, then you have people who go, okay, I just fall short of this qualifying line. Yeah. Can I appeal? Right. And right. then that, and I mean, that when will, you know, are yeah. that When you are that individual, it sucks. Yeah. Right? It's very difficult to tell that individual. But you must think of the greater benefit to society. Jeez Louise. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, you know, can of worms. But I think that's where interesting debates can be had. You know, policy discussions, which I, I, I'm not an expert on, obviously. Yeah, me neither. Uh, you know, I, I only have scientific funding is really where, where, you know, and even then I'm not an expert on this myself. So this, is, well. this is where the universal basic income discussion, right, that Ben Thompson lays out actually comes in because most people talk about it in terms of, you know, we are a developed society, this is what, you know, we should take care of people kind of thing. And of course, on the other side, you have an argument, the good faith argument is a real argument, which is where does this money come from and will people continue to generate economic value when they don't depend on it for survival? Which is a real question. It is, yeah, yeah. And Ben Thompson's argument is, um, well, he begins with this idea that people may work for survival, right? But people don't live for money. They live for 
meaning. Yes. And so when they don't have to worry about money, they will try and find ways to generate meaning. Mm. And of course, this is going to be different for different people. Yeah. Right? Um, but he lays this out as a, as a way to say you don't have to worry about people sitting at home and watching TV all day. Right? Yeah, I mean, like, th- there will be people who do that, but you know, that's yeah. gonna be such an infinitesimal fraction of of yeah. the you know, and and the the people it benefits will go on to generate value that far outstrips the people who are sucking things the, uh, resources away. That's the idea, right? Right. Yeah. Then the next argument that he makes, which I think is the really compelling part of it, is you cannot measure or predict the level of innovation that's gonna come from people who are able to take risks. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, this is fundamentally the, 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 the rule or you know, the, the important thing that I think many people don't get. You cannot yep. predict yep. the future. <laughs> right? Every investment you make in research is a bet. Yes. Right? And anyone who, who, who studies betting and gambling will tell you that you cannot predict the outcome of a bet with any level of certainty. You have probabilities, but that's yeah. as far as you can go. Which again comes back to probability, right? Is a is is the uh, this is like this well, is no, like um, the more important is we suck at estimating probabilities. Yeah, no, but I mean the thing is, even if you have a good estimate of probability, like we know that the chance of a coin flip coming up X or Y, mm. right, heads or tails, is fifty percent for a balanced coin, right? Mm. But it doesn't matter for the individual coin flip. It only matters aggregated over many coin flips. Well, not only that, so we suck at estimating probabilities, but we also suck at, un- at understanding what probability means. Mm-hmm. I think that's the more important thing. So it's like when I put a, a, you know, a bet down on a scientific project that yeah. is risky, right? Yeah. You know, probabilistic, probabilistically speaking, Right, it mm-hmm. still means that it, there's there's a there's a decent chance that it might produce something that could be useful, just not yep. its intended purpose. <laughs> I mean, look yep. at oh, a man. good chunk of there's... all those things we use today are spun out of. So yeah, there is actually anyway. a um, I don't remember what this is called because I heard of I I heard of this on an audiobook that I listened to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I think the audiobook is something like um, it's from the great books, and it's um, something like what everybody should know about money or something like that. Right. Okay. And um, it's actually really interesting because it comes at it from the point of view of both behavioral economics and like I guess like traditional economics. So there is this question of, um, you know, the betting, the um. That betting, that betting pattern where you double your bet every yeah, jeez, um, right? Yeah, every iteration, every I guess. failed bet. Yeah, so you bet one dollar, and then if you lose that dollar, you bet two dollars. Yeah, if you lose the two dollars, you bet four dollars. You win yeah. the two, the four dollars. Now you are in the black, right? Because you have yes. won a dollar, and so every time you perform this pattern, you get a dollar back. And yeah. so the question was. Okay, from an economics point of view, if you think about expected value, right, why is it that when you poll people and you tell them, okay, this is the betting pattern that you're going to... Uh, no, I think it's not exactly this. I think it's something like... Um, 
it's a variant of this. So it's like, okay, for every... Okay, we're going to flip a coin. If it comes up heads, right, you lose. And if, you, if it comes up tails, the pot doubles. Mm. You can stop at any time. <laughs> right? And according to this, according to like economic, um, what, what was the term? Expected value. If you base it on expected value, right, you should, in a sense, never stop. It's a paradox. Right. You, you, yeah. you would never stop flipping. Yeah. Right? Because the expected value of continuing the game is always higher than yeah. stopping. But in reality, people say that they will stop after about three throws. Right. Why is that? And so this is actually brilliant in two senses. One is the traditional economics point of view, which is that the marginal utility of each additional dollar drops. Mm. Right? Okay, okay. Yeah. When you have $1, having $2 sounds great. When you yes. have $4, you care a lot less about having extra $4. That, that's true, yeah. Right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the marginal utility view. The okay. other view, which is uh, behavioral economics, actually jives perfectly, which is people can imagine flipping three tails. They cannot right. imagine flipping ten. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Because the probability yeah. of that is so low. That's right, yes. Right? That in the mind of a human being, it approaches zero. And it becomes yeah. zero. Yeah. Right? It's just that we are very bad at estimating low probability events. Yeah. Which I, um, if I find that, the name of the paradox, I'll put it in, but I okay. don't think I'll find it. Yeah. Which I, I, which I thought was fantastic. It's yes. not the kind of thing that you expect to hear on an audiobook while falling asleep. <laughs> it's going to prevent you from falling asleep. It is like, <laughs> yeah. ah. <laughs> I never thought of that. I must Google now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> It, yeah, in any case, I, I, I wasn't expecting today's discussion to delve into economics, which is a field that I know jack shit about. Listen to Planet Money. It's a very good <laughs> education in, and painless education in economics. Right? Compared not to like what you... Not, not sponsored. I mean, like, do they even give out money? I don't think so. Um, Planet Money grant. But I mean, they do, they do hilarious things. Like, for example, one famous series of episodes that they did was making a t-shirt they decided to make planet money t-shirts they actually crowdfunded this which is which is let me, <laughs> let me see if i can find it so um t-shirts crowd patreon or maybe kickstarter i think it was kickstarter actually um so they did a series on the global supply chain basically mm. yeah here we go <laughs> And they basically said, hey, we are going to do this Kickstarter. Um, sign up for it and you'll get a t-shirt. And we are going to do um, a series of episodes about how these things are made, right? And so mm. they actually started with like, well, actually, come to think about it. Let's start with Kickstarter. How does Kickstarter get us the money? And ah. then they talk about global, um, just the operational part of getting money from one place to another. Right. Right. Then they go to Indonesia. Yep. No, wait, not Indonesia. They start in the US. The okay. cotton for their shirt came from the US. Oh, right. Okay, yes. Yep. So it's actually grown in the US 
it's shipped to Indonesia to be woven. So they, then they go to Indonesia. They talk to the, the, the mill there. Then, not the mill, the weaving factory? I don't know. I don't okay. know what it's called. I, I, then, not my area of expertise, sure. Yeah. Then they go to Bangladesh, where it's yes. sewn. Yeah. Uh, probably one of the most sobering parts, as you can imagine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then they go to, I don't remember where, where it's printed. Then they go to Miami, where they receive the shipment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and then after that, I think they go to, I want to say Kenya. Kenya? Where basically a lot of donated clothes end up. Oh, jeez, Louise, of course. Yikes. Yeah. yeah and oh, my the, God. It's, it, I, I don't remember if it's Kenya. Um, oh, God, the life cycle of a t-shirt. Yeah. So they are, like, walking through the bazaar with, like, all these donated shirts for sale. Gosh. And then, you know, you're walking down, and it's, like, somebody's birthday party shirt or oh like whatever. God, yeah. Yeah. Spring break 1984. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then they found one of those shirts and I don't remember if they bought it, but they tracked down the person who <laughs> whose like birthday party it was. I can't remember. It was crazy stuff. Crazy oh, shit. Stuff. Okay, I need to go listen to this. Yep. Damn it. Okay, wow. Yep. Yeah, I mean it's a really it's a really good podcast in general, but that's like one of its like most Star episodes. <laughs> yeah, star, star episodes. Yeah. Yeah, crazy stuff. Oh my god. Okay, I think it's probably a good time to. to it probably round off. is. I think we we this 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 discussion went in a rather surprising direction. I wasn't expecting, uh, uh, but that's monkey mon- monkey mind, as I keep saying. <laughs> right, but I think it it turned out to be quite coherent in the end. I think so. I think it's a it's it, yeah. it does touch on rather important salient issues, broadly interesting yeah. as well. Anyway, all right, and I also have not published the previous episode, so. Uh, <laughs> Whoops, I'll try and do that. Uh, Alright, so this is Monkey Mind. The show notes for this episode can be found at monkeymind.xyz slash 023. Uh, and we will see you sometime. Whenever. Oh, whenever. Alright, bye-bye. Bye-bye.